This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. As you heard in the intro to the show, it is the 10th anniversary here at Heritage Radio Network. We've been coming into this little shipping container now for 10 years to bring you the best and most interesting podcasts about food. So please become a member today. We are a nonprofit. We are a member-supported organization. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and join up. Today's theme for the show, what's old is new again, but also we keep moving forward. In the thousands of years that humans have been on this earth, we've figured out a few things. We now live in the most technologically advanced society that we know of, though some people think that it's only a matter of time before someone or something from another planet shows up to either join us or eat us. There are some things, however, that are still the same. The sun rises, the sun sets, we still need to sleep, and we still need to eat food. For thousands of years, we've used copper for cooking. At first, it was because it was easy to shape and work with. It wasn't until much later that we came to understand why copper is such a good conductor of heat. We'll get to that a little later in the show. It's efficient, it's beautiful, and like a modern chef's knife, we've come to the shapes we use, not based on the ideals of an architect or a designer, but really through generations of trial and error and iterative refinement that has led to the most common shapes we use in the modern kitchen. There are cheaper materials like aluminum and stainless steel that we can and do use for cookware, but there's nothing almost nothing, that cooks as well or as efficiently or as beautifully as copper cookware. My guests today are Sarah Dahman. She's a copper and tinsmith as well as an award-winning author of historical fiction. Her Flats Junction series covers the Western migration of Eastern European immigrants in 19th century America, and it was through her research of these novels that she fell in love with copper and tin and the possibilities they hold, and that led her to actually make those things with her hands. Thanks, Sarah, for coming to Feast Your Ears today. Thank you, Harry. I'm so excited to be here. So let's jump right in and talk about uh, copper and tin. It's uh, We met at the International Housewares Association show in Chicago this past March, where you were in your booth actually making cups out of copper. Yeah, I had all the old tools, and uh, 
uh, gave myself a concussion actually during oh, no. setup on one of those big tinsmithing stakes. <laughs> um, so it's not without dangers that you do this trade. <laughs> um, how did you come into this trade? I mean, it really, you know, when I think of tinsmiths and tinsmithing as someone who has been in the cookware business and been in the housewares business for a long time, uh, it feels very uh, old. It feels colonial. The idea that someone would use their hands to actually make cookware in this day and age with big factories um, feels very, uh, I don't know, like ripe for Etsy and Instagram, but it also has other value. It does. And I, you know, people who, who are serious uh, in the kitchen collect it, but they also use it because they know that it works a certain way. And I came into this even uh, not, I had no copper cookware in my house. Um, I didn't know how to use it no matter how it was made. Um, and, uh, and so when, when I got started doing this, it, it first was a total inching organic process of figuring out how it worked, why it worked, um, feeling brave enough to put it on the stove. And, uh, and, and, um, and I didn't even plan to make it myself at first. What was that like to use the first piece that you made? Scary. (laughs) (laughs) Do you still do you still use it? Oh yeah. Now I've actually cleaned out everything except copper and cast iron. I think I have one big stainless pot yet, but everything else is the old school stuff. And and I um and and it's and it is like practice makes perfect. You do get used to it. Sure. It's it's just. I mean, I think one of the things for me about copper that is so amazing is that, like I said in the beginning, it's something that we as humans have been using to fashion tools and cookware because it was easy and it was malleable, but it wasn't until really the 20th century that people came to understand why. When they started to look at the molecular makeup of copper as an atom and understand that it has free electrons, it's why we use it in wiring, and it transfers heat incredibly well and so much better than any pan that probably 99% of people listening have ever used. I think the, the only way you can have more efficiency is if you line it with silver. Yeah. Um, And in fact, I was going to tell you about this on the air, there is a coppersmith in Rhode Island who is spinning pans out of pure silver. He's using two and three millimeter silver sheet. Jim is doing that? Yeah. Jim's doing it's that. a very tiny I've seen community. them. I know. I figured you Jim. <laughs> um, I've seen the pans, and they're spectacular. They're also spectacularly expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they are not. They, I mean, they are for, if 99% of people don't know about using copper, those silver pans are for like the 0.001% yeah. of people who can afford it and would make use of that much, slightly better. Right. Right. I, I mean, and, and, and a big, you know, a big part of the efficacy of copper is, and I, I mean, not to get on a on a box right away, but is when it is bonded with a material like tin or silver that transfers that heat properly. Otherwise, um, you know, I always tell people um, if they want to get a a copper pot that's lined with stainless, that save yourself the money and just get yourself some stainless pans because you're not going to get the same performance. And there's such a huge debate on it, but most of us makers have gotten to the point where we've used different things and we're... uh, and we're like, no, there's a reason. Like, it bonds molecularly. It it behaves that way um, because of the science behind the different metals. You just can't change the science of stainless versus tin versus copper versus aluminum. That just, you can't change 
facts. Right. So I brought I brought a little copper pen. <laughs> I see that it's cute. Uh, it's a very cute one. It needs retinning. Um, that I picked up recently at a at a garage sale. Um, but I brought it because I wanted to use it as an example to talk about the structure and the shape and how these copper pans are made because I think that you and I both know and understand it, but when you say it's lined with tin, I don't necessarily know that everyone listening knows what that means. So this is a small, round, uh, I would call it like an egg pan. It's like six inches across. Um, but it is spun from a sheet of copper, right? That's how that was formed. Yeah, or it was uh, pressed. Or There's pressed, always the possibility sure. it was Rest. So it's like a thin sheet of copper that is rounded and molded and made into that shape. Mm-hmm. Then what happens to it? Because it has there are a number of other steps it has to go through before it gets to a state where it could be used. Right. And if I could back it up even more, ideally, you are um, really specifying the type of copper that you're using oh. for the body because tin adheres to different grades of copper differently. And I notice this when I'm doing restorations or repairs um, or refurbishments of pieces from different countries or from different eras. The copper is different. It's uh, a different quality with, um, you know, different impurities and it will react differently with the tinning and the restoration process. So if, if, you know, if I were to start doing this, I would, I would spec a very specific grade of copper. I would ask for what we call CDA 122, which is still pure copper, just like a 110. But because during the smelting process, it is deoxidized, the oxidation is pulled out of it with using phosphorus that when I then, after it's formed, when I do go and tin it, though there's other steps I'll get to, but when you tin it, it actually holds the tin much better. Fascinating. Um, so there's a whole extra piece of this. But um, after you get the body, then you have to get handles formed yep. for the sides. You have to make sure that they match the radius um, um, on the outside. And then um, then you drill the handles. Then you match up those, and you have to drill the body. And then you have to get the proper rivets, the right size, the right diameter, the right length, the right kind of rivets. You certainly want to use copper. And then you have to rivet them on with different power tools and then you go yeah and then you get it ready for tinning and you put it over the fire and you melt that tin in and you wipe it with your hands and hope you don't burn yourself too bad yeah there's a there's, i was watching a video this morning of you tinning a rather large uh looked like a saute pan yeah uh what's the what's the um the the cloth or the fat the the fiber that you're holding in your hand to wipe the tin with you can use um two things ideally um at least in this country um, and safely is either a pure cotton wadding because cotton actually is pretty fire retardant. Hmm. People don't think of that, but sure. I mean, that's why people in the old school days, pioneers, colonial times, if you, you wore cotton around your campfires or your hearth because it, it, it didn't catch, it didn't flare up, you know? Sure. Um, but it's you, so interesting to hear you mention that. I remember an experiment that just, that like you just brought back a memory to me from an experiment in a science class in high school where we burned different kinds of rope. Oh, sure. And we made assumptions over which ones would burn and which ones wouldn't. And I remember very specifically the copper, like, clothesline was very hard to burn. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's so, um, you yeah, so you can use cotton wadding or you, I was actually using um, insulation. Huh. Like, just what you put in like house walls. Like, fiberglass insulation, because that also is fire retardant. And, and the tin doesn't stick to it. No. Got it. No. And I, I flux it up, too. I use, a like, a liquid flux, which is, it kind of preps the copper to 
um, Ed take the tin, sure. but that's a more modern invention. Back in the day, a tinsmith would have used anything from like a borax soap when that was invented or um, salmoniac or even going further back, pine rosin from like pine trees. They huh. would powder it up and use that as a flux. Got it. And so why do you need to put tin? To make a it food pan? safe. Got food it. safe. Um, you don't need it if your um, like copper bowls and jam pans usually aren't lined with with tin because you're not getting the food hot enough or you're not actually heating the food. But it just it um, it makes it food safe and it also is non-stick tin. It's non-stick. Right, right. The copper itself, the copper is not is it will stick. It will stick. Uh, I've had to clean the outside of lots of my copper pots, yeah. and if you get a piece of egg or you get stuff on the outside, it definitely sticks it for sticks. sure. Just like stainless. I mean, stainless yeah. isn't non-stick either. Right. Yeah. So it was through your writing that you became interested in these products. Mm-hmm. Tell me about tell me about that that process, and tell me a little bit about your about your novels. Oh. Um. So the books, as you mentioned, and that was so articulate of you, I was I said I should be taking notes on how <laughs> you described the books. Um, they are uh, mid nineteenth century era pioneer America. Um, um, mostly from the viewpoint of, of the women. Um, so it's first person, present tense. So it's a very intimate uh, journey through um, their kind of self-discovery of how and, and where they belong in this new, this new and very uh, changing culture that the West was. And it was kind of our last frontier. Sure. Um, and uh, and I, uh, I realized that regardless of what they maybe wanted to do, so many of these women spent the majority of their time in the kitchen. They had to. And everything happened in the kitchen. All the discussions happened in the kitchen. And I started to, you know, always have to research what they would have in the kitchen. So these books would be very realistic and correct. And I realized that a lot of what was in those kitchens even 100 years ago was really not in use anymore and hard to find. Or if it was, it was not made here. And you could no longer walk down the street and pick it up like our great-grandmothers did. Sure. And I called my poor husband and I said... I want to start a cookware line. And he's like, you don't know anything about metal. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> and a thousand phone calls later, so many cold calls, so many no's. Um, I was finally able to find just enough people and the right people who were willing to kind of share their bits of knowledge and combine that all into first having people make a lot of these pieces and then eventually getting an apprenticeship so I could make it myself. Have you had a hard time? I saw in one of your videos you were using, uh, I think you referred to it as like a uh, a tinsmith's anvil. It looks like a very, very long, thin anvil. Not, yeah. like, not like we yeah, imagine it's called like a, a western mm-hmm. like, yeah. uh, horseshoeing anvil. Right. Um, and, and I started to think about what the process would be like for finding something like that. I happen to follow on Instagram people that deal in like tools and stuff. But of course, all this stuff that shows up is stuff that seems fairly common or at least is stuff I recognize and that's not something I recognize so I thought it must be very hard to find these things I assume nobody's making these tools anymore uh Pexto um which goes way back and is a combination of several different companies that have combined over the decades and centuries they do still make some Hmm. of these pieces they're very modernized um I don't think many of the tinsmithing anvils are around anymore because a lot of what the tinsmiths and the coppersmiths used to make aren't made anymore. I mean, sure. you don't need to have the stake for making the candlestick molds anymore. Right. <laughs> we just don't need them. Right. Or the needle case stakes. Um, uh, they're still in rotation. There were a lot of them. Most of them are found on the East Coast, and they have to be shipped to the Midwest where I live. Um, and the guys way out West, I say guys because I 
there's maybe three other female tinsmiths I know of. Um, but so they they can't get them out there. They have to really be hunting and looking. And, and does that have to do with the, the history of the progression of the country? I mean, just that by the time the West Coast became populous, these things had already moved out of fashion? Um, yes and no. And that's actually a really common misconception. Um, California and the Southwest was populated in the 1600s sure by the you know the spanish and so they you know and they were making tin and copperware too it it um it some of it is that though it is the migration and you know those tools and stakes were a big deal to take out in your wagon when you really could have used food so i mean it was hard to get them out (laughs) but also because by the time the western expansion really got going um the tin and coppersmithing trade had already changed so dramatically. They had already, the Industrial Revolution was going in, and um, they had created these stamping machines on the East Coast. And so a lot of what you would have normally been using, both the stakes and even the hand crank tools I have in my shop that are from the early 1800s that still work, and I still use them, um, you didn't need them anymore. Right. You, could, you, could, you could have lighter weight pre-made parts that were stamped sent to you from New Hampshire out to the Dakotas, and you could just assemble them out there. Right. So it was kind of both things at the same time. Got it. Everyone's getting like a deep history lesson. I hope <laughs> they care about cookware this much. <laughs> well, I mean, I would encourage people. So your uh, your your series is called the Flats Junction yes. series. Yes. And uh, how many books are there now? There will be, and it's funny, the one was kind of out and then it got pulled and it's getting re-released with the next book on September 3rd. So they'll both be out then. And in the end, there will be six books. Got it. But... Um, yeah. It's, and, it, and it's focused around a town, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Flats Junction town, okay. which is totally made up. But sure. <laughs> but okay. based on real experience. Yes. Is yes. this something, uh, or are there things in the book as far as experience or characters that are based on historical members of your family? No. My, uh, my family is very new to America, hmm. um, especially my dad's side. Uh, my dad is only, um, he's first generation American, Polish American. And so he grew up in a Polish-speaking household, and um, and they nobody ever made it past Wisconsin. We we were stuck in Wisconsin, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Um, and then what about what role does food play? Uh, I mean, so you've got all the kitchen tool side of things as well. Um, you know, I noticed on your Instagram a lot of pictures of you in various sort of historical dress and reenactment making things for reenactors. So do you spend a lot of time uh, not only making historic pieces, but then using them in historically correct ways? Yes. And part of that comes with the trade, I think. Sure. Um, most tinsmiths I know reenact just because it's a great way to use what you'd make and sure. what and sell, and, and, what sell. and also you know um to show your skill and hopefully get other people interested in it um yeah we we do and it's really fun those reenactments and for us in wisconsin it's fur trade reenactments mm. or rendezvous they call them and we actually uh, one of our, our reenactments is on a peninsula that has been authenticated with archaeology with finds to the 1600s it was used as a fur trade um encampment so oh, that, that, i mean like that sounds 400 year old that sounds place. really cool yeah. i mean i i i've met and i actually on this show have interviewed a uh, a revolutionary war era reenactor sure. and i personally struggle with the idea of war reenactment because it seems weird to me to reenact battles where people were killed uh and certainly if you're on what in like you know what history has shown to be kind of the wrong side of that war like you need people on both sides right, right? so right. like that stuff always 
stretches me a little thin and I'm like, I don't know if I can really hang with that. But the idea of fur trade, not that there weren't horrible things done on either side of the fur trade, but the idea that you're, you know, sort of looking at at what that was like. Um, There's a reenactment in Rhode Island called the Gatsby Days in Warwick, Rhode Island, and it has to do with some stuff that happened during the revolution. And so they like have a reenactment of a, of a revolutionary war era camp, but there's not a battle or anything. Right. No, and there's no battles. One, because they really didn't happen um but two what the beautiful thing about the rendezvous are rendezvous kind of mean a coming together of so um everything there's native americans there there's um french voyager reenactors there's you know the townspeople there's the camp followers there's everything and everybody is there to kind of get along to trade to share to share stories and pass a jug that totally happens um and um, well, it makes the history real. It does, well. but you do cook that way. You can't use modern ways. Um, so you're making coffee the old-fashioned way, and, and you, that means boiling water over a fire, and you got to get started early if you want coffee at a decent hour. Yeah. And <laughs> um, and then you just have loose grounds, and you have to use the old way of you know putting in eggshells to make the ground sink. Sure. Or you know old wa- you know cold water. It's yeah. it's fun. And do you take your kids along? Oh yeah. Yeah, they oh, like yeah. it. They love it. In fact, I highly recommend if you want to self-train your kids on how to take naps on their own or go to bed at a decent hour on their own, take them to a rendezvous. They're outside so long, they're like at 7.30, they're like, I'm going to bed. (laughs) They just disappear. (laughs) They're outside. But you do have to say really weird things like, no, you may not chase the geese in the park with the spears you just made. Please come back. So it's, it's, they get a really great hands-on experience. And my daughter really likes to do a lot of the cooking with me. So she gets some really amazing hands-on experiences that are outside of the kitchen, but still um, uh, teach her hopefully really interesting skill sets that she'll be able to use later whenever she wants to make something and have to you know make it up as she goes or something right. like that. Awesome. We're going to take a short break here and hear from one of our sponsors at Heritage Radio Network. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk uh, a little bit more about food and maybe some regional foods of Wisconsin. Ooh. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late night seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Today, my guest is Sarah Daman. She is an author and a tinsmith and coppersmith and a mom. And we were talking about all kinds of uh, things related to that before the break. Uh, so, Sarah, you are from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, I feel like one of the things that as the internet has exploded, you know, we used to have to turn to food magazines like Saber and Gourmet, and there would always be articles about these sort of like unsung food things that are regional. So I want to know, like, what is there in Wisconsin that we don't get in New York that we, you know, should know about if we go there? 
Well, you definitely need to go to um, a supper club. And I, you guys have those here, I'm sure, we right? We do, for you sure. Have, right? By us, uh, we do supper club club, and we get a <laughs> bunch of couples, and we will drive up to an hour one way through cow fields to get to a specific supper club. Um, but you always have to go for the fish fry. Hmm. And it's different because for us, you know, being right near Lake Michigan, our fish fry is lake fish right. that's usually very fresh. Um, but along with that, you always have to get the fried cheese curds, okay. which sure. has, I think, gotten out of Yeah, Wisconsin. we do. I mean, we get them here. Beecher's cheese. They're probably cheese, not good. It now no, is kidding. like making cheese in New York. But yeah. everyone I know is like, they're not the same. They're not the same. Yeah. And they have to be fried. I mean, if you get them fresh, great. And they squeak and it's wonderful. But if you get them fried and they have to be the right batter, you can't use a heavy batter. You have to like very light next to nothing, throw them in. And there's nothing like it. Whenever I get people actually from uh, New York at my wedding, I have a friend who lives in New York and she was one of my, stood up in my wedding. And um, <laughs> I kind of felt bad for her because I think it was the first time she'd ever been to a Catholic mass and she was standing up in the wedding and didn't know when to sit, stand, kneel. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, she was fine. But we went in the middle of the rehearsal dinner to get these cheese curds so she could try them because she'd never had fried cheese curds. <laughs> and um, But that and then um, uh, I'm trying to think of some that haven't screeched, you know, scooched its way out. What, what I find fascinating and kind of funny is how outside of Wisconsin, the old-fashioned is considered this specialty cocktail drink. And... Um, and it's not in Wisconsin <laughs> because everybody's been having them since they could drink and their dads each have their own recipe for making them. Wow. And it's a thing. And there's always the argument, is it brandy old-fashioned or whiskey old-fashioned? Is it brandy old-fashioned sour or brandy old-fashioned sweet? Or whiskey old-fashioned? Like, there's, and, 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 it's, and it's not fancy. You know, you're not muddling an orange and you're not doing this cherry muddle. No, 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 no. You just, you pour it. It takes three seconds. It's, you know. But everyone has a variation. And everyone has a variation. And it's not a specialty cocktail. (laughs) And every bartender knows how to make one. I remember going out to the West Coast and I had to teach bartenders how to make an old-fashioned because they've never made them before. Sure. Um, But I think people are on to us for that one now, too, since I see it as specialty cocktails in places. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's very interesting. I'm trying to, I, I guess in the... Growing up in the Northeast, I feel like uh, everybody's dad, not my dad, but everybody else's dad drank martinis. And so it was always a like, how many olives do you take it dry? Is it with vodka? Is it with gin? Like that was kind of a thing. My father just drank straight vodka. Yeah, we we don't really do. Martinis are a city thing in Wisconsin. Yeah. Like they don't really do them where I'm from. I'm from a village in northern Wisconsin. And uh, uh, they don't, you a martini? Wow, are you pretentious? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like i don't even think my parents have martini glasses in sure. their house but they got a lot of low balls yeah. for whatever you need <laughs> um what about frozen custard so oh, i sure. i had a, i had a friend who went to uw madison and i went to see her once and we drove up to the dells and we had frozen like what i remember from that trip is frozen custard and what i remember about it is it was just like it was like if you took regular soft serve ice cream and somehow crammed like twice as much cream, twice as much egg yolk, and twice as much sugar into it in the same amount of space. I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't either because I've never made it. But yeah. there are. Um, it is. A, it is a relatively. You're right. That is. It's a more of a regional than Wisconsin thing. But there are most of the things are pretty family owned and operated. They have maybe a couple of places, and yeah, frozen custard. I guess we kind of 
do kind of think of it as a given. I guess I didn't realize you guys don't have access to it. Like every, I mean, we have Mr. Softy trucks, which like are a thing, but are not, I mean, the ice cream sucks, but like when it's, when you're outside on the street in New York, like today walking here, I was like, Oh, it really is summer in New York. It stinks on the street. It smells terrible. Like, and then, but like you get like an ice cream cone, like that's an awesome. Yes. No. And the custard is, um, uh, and actually, I don't. You guys probably don't have Culvers around here, do you? No. No, that's that is really regional. I think there's a whole bunch in Wisconsin, and um, and maybe like a handful of Illinois, and that's it. But um, but that's a like a um, uh, how do you say it? You don't you don't go to Culvers. You ask, do you want a Culvers? It huh. means like, do you want to go get an, a, a frozen custard ice cream? It's like a I don't know, not a verb, but kind right. of like it's it's, tra- it's transcendent yes, language in yes. a certain way. Interesting. So uh, your books have been optioned for the screen. Yes. Let's talk about that. Uh, I'm very curious to know what that process is like. That's why you're in New York, actually, right? You're mm-hmm. doing some work on that right now? Yeah, we're working on screenplays and coming up with more strategy. It's, I, I will say, coming at it from being an author and not really having a lot of um, experience in, in Hollywood and everything, I'm amazed a movie ever makes it to the theater or gets on a screen or streaming or anything. The amount of dancing that's done to get all the pieces together at just the right time at just the right place is phenomenal i have so much respect for the producers that put it all together um but yeah the books are all optioned even though they're not done yet occasionally one of the executive producers will be like so you are still working on those books right (laughs) (laughs) um and i am i i am um and they are are there the plan right now is for feature film um, there's always talk of, well, maybe we'll do it as a series or something like that too. But right now the screenplay is, is done and it's for feature and we're, uh, we, they, they're talking to different directors and, um, casting directors and they've found a location in Santa Fe, oh, wow. um, that is already kind of been quasi secured. Like it's moving. Amazing. So I, I, cool. I think that means it might happen, but as I've learned, it's never guaranteed. Right. Yeah. You're, you're never sure. Yeah. Did you need to, uh, compromise or change any of the sort of main storylines? I mean, I think of, you know, having read lots of books that have then been made into movies where things get changed around for the screen. Um, uh, hell yeah. Yeah. It's you, I, there's no such thing as ownership once it's been optioned. I just have to let it go and recognize that whatever's being created and and I'm helping with the screenplay. Yeah. So I'm seeing this happen and I'm having to let go of things. So even things that were important for me, like certain characters who do spend a lot of time in the kitchen, those quieter moments really don't translate sure. to screen. So Watching someone stir a pot is right, not exciting. Right? Yeah. And and their inner thoughts yeah. that, <laughs> that don't really come out. So the 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 books themselves have really good characters and, and I mean, not, I don't, I say that as, and they're very um, complex people. So that's what makes it, I think interesting, but, and the themes of the book are very current. Sure. Um, but they're the, the movies are probably never, it's not going to be anything like the books. I think the closest chance that that would be to happening would be if it does get picked up for any type of series, episodic TV, sure. then they could go back in and redo it and pull in a lot more for the books. It's like saying, could you really make Outlander into a movie? Yeah. I mean, think of what you'd have to cut it yeah. just and change. Yeah, for so. sure. Um, I do, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you say that they're kind of the, the themes are relevant 
now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that we have seen in the last, you know, we, we're in the midst of, I, I think of it as like another back to the land movement in a way, where people are looking sort of backwards at a simpler time or wanting to, you know, being pulled in two directions of like, I want to put my phone down, but I want to take a picture of this, you know, uh, strawberry that I grew in my garden, right? Like there's yeah. kind of this interesting push-pull of I need to show everybody how much I'm like raising chickens, but then I also need to just like raise the chickens and have my children run around in the grass. Yes, yes, and there is. Um, and, you know, that's a good question. Um, the, the books themselves, one of the main themes is intolerance, which is strung throughout, which I think is relevant at any time period, sure. but it's more so now than anything. And of course, coming from a, a, a woman's point of view um, and how that intolerance manifests, um, intolerance of yourself, intolerance of other women or of other people or of different races, everything that's all touched on. So that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons they, they grabbed it for, for option. Um, but um, the back to the land movement, and I, and I, I'm not gonna. I don't want to give up spoilers of books that are not yet. But, <laughs> but, but um, I do think that there is strength and power in learning a lot about our past and how we used to live and how we used to eat and how we used to use herbs and um, and even uh, you know nature as medicine. And not that I'm purporting like any type of way of living in that way. I just think that it's 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 kind of powerful to to know all of it. Like I can go and get an antibiotic from the doctor for my kid, but at the same time, like, I can give them elderberry tincture every morning to help them boost their immunity. Sure. And grow the elderberries myself and, yeah. you know, make the tincture. So, I mean, it's it's a melding of the two still, I yep. think, and it's totally possible to do both. And, and it's having an understanding of those things in the past without sort of limiting ourselves, I think, from looking at the future. Exactly. And, and, and sort of understanding that. I think that, you know, having an understanding of global trade and the fact that, you know, most of the cookware that is produced is produced overseas. A lot of it's produced in China in factories where we don't really have any idea. We can assume, you know, or choose to believe that the factories are good and are treating people well, but we really don't know. And so, you know, buying a piece of cookware from you where you know the place they're forging the cast iron pieces that you sell, you know the people that are doing it that are doing the seasoning there is the ability I think with the technology to connect those things and to connect that to the consumer exactly and I think that's been probably the the most wonderful thing about this is because I do have the internet at my fingertips and I can find exactly who I need to create what I want to create because without that there's no way I could have done anything that I'm doing now because I wouldn't have known that there was the exact foundry I needed in Lodi, California and you know I we wouldn't have been able to find the people who are smelting co- the copper sheets in Houston right. you know sure. there's there's just that has been the beauty of technology while trying to recreate these extremely old-fashioned pieces um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really, I think that's a really important point to recognize. Um, and also for anyone listening who is interested in doing something like this, like you do live in a time where you can get on the internet and find these places. You don't have to live in a place where they're actually pulling the iron ore out of the ground like you used to. <laughs> right. And you have to be ready to hear no a thousand yeah, times because sure. you're going to come up, you know, if you have an idea to recreate something that hasn't been done in a long time, a lot of people are going to be scared and say, ah. <sighs> we don't do that and uh, we aren't going to do that and we're not going to try and we don't know what to send you. Good luck. Goodbye. (laughs) Click. So, um, and that's okay. I mean, 
hearing no doesn't mean no forever. It just means not that exact second. Right. So so right now when people go to your site, which is housecopper.com, or if they want to read about your, your other work, it's sarahdomin.com. But if they go to housecopper.com, they will find copper cookware. They will find some cast iron cookware, which mm-hmm. you've recently started doing. Um, they will find some pottery. Mm-hmm. And they will find some textiles. Yep. And some woodware. Yep. Some wooden spoons and things. Yep. Um, do you feel like there are other things that you're still working on in that collection of historical objects? Oh, yeah. I mean, it all comes down to how much money I have in my savings to start creating these pieces because there's so much that goes into just the R&D and actually creating the tooling to make them. Um, But um, uh, I I really hope to add... um, more cookware specifically different sizes of copper pots um even while i try and keep them in the shapes of what would have been made by american coppersmiths which is the goal usually um and and uh you know i do have trays and cups and things like that in the works that i hope to be able to to offer they're a little bit lower priced items which i think will help but they'll still be very useful and will last five thousand years sure but I mean, I think that's another thing, you know, if people do go to the site, it's definitely the items are not inexpensive, but there's a reason for that. Right. And, and I think that, and, and there's also a historical context I think people need to understand as well, which is that we live in an era where things are artificially cheap because we're getting tons of them off the backs of cheap labor, off cheap products that are meant to be thrown out. But when the characters in your books were moving west, that was not the case. I have in in my collection of antique uh, pots and pans and tools and things, I have a cast iron skillet that was repaired twice by somebody, which to me is amazing because now if you broke a cast, even now a cast iron skillet, I mean, you know, uh, you can buy a really cheap Chinese one or you can buy a slightly more expensive American one. It's still less than like 40 bucks. It's not that much. But if you think about what that money meant to the person who owned this pan that I have that was cast around sometime in the 1870s that they repaired it the side piece broke out of the side and it's got rivets holding that piece back in they repaired it they didn't throw it out because it was expensive and they couldn't just go out and buy another one right and they 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 really did feel like anything could be fixed usually sure and that's why too you know a lot of times at least where i am i hear a lot of people say well my grandfather was a blacksmith because there was an animal on the farm he wasn't a blacksmith he just didn't want to go all the way into town to get the nails repaired by the local blacksmith he was just going to hammer those things out on the farm in the barn and go back to work right it was the equivalent of like you know my dad has saws and tools and stuff he's not a carpenter right Right. But he knows how to use them right. to fix but, something if right. he needs to. But it's a, that's the misconception, yeah, you know. Sure. And um and I do think too, I mean, that that's there there really wasn't a throwaway culture yeah. even a hundred years ago. I mean, in the time of Downton Abbey to make it you know, they had copper pots in the kitchen back then. Those copper pots were probably already a hundred years old before they were cooking with them in Downton Abbey. Right. I mean, if we were in that time period. And um and I do think that that's important to recognize. So for my pieces, and I know if people go on, they'll be like, oh, these are not like $100. No, but just the hard cost alone is extremely expensive. But then, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of handwork that goes into them. And then, then, yeah, you think about, divide that out, how many times you won't have to throw away this piece of cookware that you bought three years ago that's already failing. Um, But it's just a completely different mindset. And, and, um, but I think people are starting to think that way. And um, that's really encouraging, both in terms of our food as well as our cookware. I mean, we're asking the same, we're, you know, we're talking about food. We, yeah. we, 
is it local? Where was it? Where was it grown? Is it on a sustainable farm? Is it organic? Um, were the chickens treated well? Um, is the farmer? You know, all these questions we have about our food, and then we take it home, and you cook it on what? What's right. it made out of? Sure. Who made it? Where is it from? Yeah. Is it safe? It is it sustainable? With? What's yeah. it coated with? Is it energy efficient? All the same kinds of questions we have about food should bleed. And I think it's a very natural transition to talk about cookware in the same sphere because um, it's still all food related. It's where the chemical change happens to our food. And it's still that longevity mindset, really. It's an extension of that. Um, and, and, and it is exciting to talk to people like you and, and people who are really starting to think like that on a bigger scope beyond even cookware. I mean, on everything in life. Yeah. And hopefully we'll save our planet. No more landfills. <laughs> Hope so. We'll see. Uh, our children will see, I guess, yes, is how it really yes. is going to work It's all out. for posterity. Yeah. Um, I was watching your TED Talk oh, about yeah. uh, being a woman trying to get into a metal shop and, and get into something that is both sort of a dying art that is also male-dominated and is just not a place that uh, is particularly open, whether I think that's to women or men, right? I mean, it, in many cases, these things are old companies or old family places where if they're looking for someone to come and work, maybe they're looking for someone to come and operate a machine, maybe they're not. And so it may not be open to anybody, male or female, but it's even harder for a woman in that in that realm. Have you seen, since you really you know, pushed to get into that world. Are there other women who have contacted you to say, Hey, I'm interested in learning about this? No, hmm. no. Um, it's a dirty job. Sure. You need to be strong. Um, and you need to learn about metal and not be afraid to get your hands burned, cut, smashed. Um, which you get over really quick. Cause it happens all the time. I mean, my hands are just scarred up. Um, but it's, um, and it, but I think because people don't recognize that they can do it. Sure. Copper smithing traditionally is a very secretive trade. And blacksmithing was too, but a lot of it is you don't share your secrets because then you'll lose business. And this wow. mindset goes back into the 1800s and probably even earlier, but there was a book written by a man who's like, my dad told me not to write this book. And it was like 1894. He's like, my dad told me not to write this book and give away the secrets, but uh, screw him. I'm going to write it anyway. <laughs> Because he wanted to be he a wanted, writer, not he want, working right? in a hot forge. Right. Uh, right? Yeah. But, and he talks, and it's one of those books where it really isn't useful unless you already are a coppersmith anyway and know the terminology. But he wrote it down hoping to save the knowledge. Mm. And um, and that was the last book people wrote on coppersmithing. So that's been 1894 till now. Wow. Um, and, um, and, and I even, I was recently speaking to another retinner. There's a handful of us that retin and reline copper cookware. And, uh, and he made me sign an NDA before he told me his family's way of doing things. And it's still that secretive. And I get a lot of, kind of a little bit of flack going, wow, I can't believe you're showing what you do in your shop on YouTube. Like you're giving away your trade secrets. And I'm like, but no one else is going to learn how to do this or be able to try it on their own or get excited about it unless yeah. they have some visual in English for once, right. you know, on how it's done. And, and it still takes time and it's still, you still have to invest sure, in machines. It's, a, it's not like I'm going to like suddenly have a thousand competitors. It's a huge leap for someone to watch the video I watched of you retinning a pan and then go retin a pan. Right. I mean, I have seen people retin in person. I've watched that. I understand the process. And sure, I could go out and I can get, I, I own a propane turkey burner. I have 
fireproof gloves. I don't have any tin, but I could probably buy Like, I could probably figure it out, but I'm not going to, right? I mean, like, I dropped some pans off to Jim in Rhode Island to get them retinned because I have a house near there. And, like, it's way more efficient for me to do that. Yeah. And to love the process and understand the process. But, the, yeah, the number of people who are going to go out and be like, I'm just going to start retinning myself because I watched a video. Really and, nice and there stuff. are some, but, you know, but that's good, you know, the more people that want to use copper and the more it becomes available and hopefully less and less expensive because it's what people expect and want in their kitchens, the better off we'll all be. Yeah. So that's the real, the end goal. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, it's been awesome to have you on Feast Your Ears. We need to wrap up because there's another show coming in okay. after us here in the studio. Um, anything else on the horizon? So your next book, which is coming out, is called Tinsmith, 1865. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I assume that one is about the tinsmith in the town. Yes, it is. <clears throat> Very cool. Yes. Uh, that'll be out this fall. Yes, September uh, 3rd. Awesome. And people can find you on Twitter at Sarah Daman Books. Yep. And on Instagram at House Copper. Yep. And follow along with your adventures. Housecopper.com to order any mm-hmm. of your products. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything else that you want to mention? Anything else in the works? Um, I suppose I, I very quickly, I would be remiss if I didn't say there'll be a book on cookware coming out in spring of cool. 2020. Um, HarperCollins will be releasing that. I think it's like April. Um, and that'll be a lot about history, science, use, care of cookware. Very approachable. Any, you know, my mom can read it. I kind of was like, if she can get it, everybody can get it. And um, uh, so that'll be coming out. And then they're developing in, in process of uh, developing an unscripted TV series about us in Wisconsin. My life as a coppersmith or something. I don't even know. All I'm right. just going to do copper and let everybody hopefully fall in love with copper too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. Thanks That'd so much fun. for coming in the studio today. Thank you so much for having me, Harry. Thanks everybody for listening to Feast Your Ears today. A reminder, it is our 10th anniversary here at Heritage Radio Network. You should become a member today. HeritageRadioNetwork.org slash donate. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as the roughly 35 other shows we produce here every week at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. I'll be off for the next two weeks. There'll be reruns, and then we're taking a station break here uh, so that we can all get our last-ditch visits to the beach in, but we will be back in September. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.